This is it. The putt to win the tournament. If you sink it, the championship is yours. But on your backswing, your hat falls over your eyes. Is this how you're running your business? Poor visibility because you're still relying on spreadsheets and outdated finance software? To see the full picture, you need to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system to power your growth. With visibility and control of your financials, inventory, HR, planning, budget, and more, NetSuite is everything you need to grow, all in one place. With NetSuite, you can automate your processes and close your books in no time while staying well ahead of your competition. 93% of surveyed businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Over 27,000 businesses already use NetSuite. And right now, through the end of the year, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program to those ready to upgrade at NetSuite.com slash C-Suite. Head to NetSuite.com slash C-Suite for special end-of-year financing on the number one financial system for growing businesses. NetSuite.com slash C-Suite. Welcome to C-Suite Radio. We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. But we forget that we have the power to define them. That no idea grows from mewling striped cum to teeth at your throat tiger. Without a little help, some guidance and a whole lot of love along the way. I am Jared Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers. Well, for our second convo in the lead-up to the Seven Great Rules miniseries, we invited Kate Walinga, a former forensic psychologist, crisis clinician, and host of Ignorance Was Bliss. In our earlier talks with Kate, the notion of how we make sense of our world in order to get by came up quite a few times, so we decided to record a few episodes on the stories we tell ourselves about the folks we know, the ones that we don't, and our own everyday life, and how, if we can let go of the boundaries that we used to know, will the space memory time enough for other more fruitful tales to grow. We hope you enjoy it. I'm Jared Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers, the only podcast show where we take life by the tail. Here with me today is Kate Walinga, the host of Ignorance Was Bliss. Kate, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for letting me come play. <laughs> it is play, isn't it? It's, you know, the closest I get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> play for adults. That's what podcasting is. So Ignorance Was Bliss, we, we have our own kind of social context for what that means. But when you chose the title, what were you thinking? I am a former forensic psychologist and crisis clinician, and it's easier to separate out us versus them than it is to have empathy and understanding for both people convicted of crimes as well as people who have had some sort of serious crisis that might land them in the emergency room, for instance. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is let's tell some stories and the problem with a good story is that when you're done, you understand the other person's point of view and you kind of can't unknow it once you know it. Mm, and that makes things harder. Yes. And so ignorance was bliss and now it's gone. 
in short, all of the heuristics we get through, the, the, the quick mental gymnastics, the leaps in logic or assumptions we make to just get through our day become harder when there's more context to the actions behind them. Empathy is a lot more difficult than name-calling and s- separation. It's, it's fascinating if you look at linguistics, how intrinsic the words for us and them or people and not people are to most societies. And given our tribal origins, it makes a certain degree of sense. How do you know who is who quickly? But sometimes, particularly, I think, as we'll talk about today, with our lives and relationships being so much online, it becomes easy to extend those dividers too far, or perhaps even to wear them as blinders, right? So when I launched the show officially, and when I launched the business here, Be Tigers, one of the realizations that came to me that I shared during the initial New Media Summit was the notion that we all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. What we forget is that we have the power to define them. That is a choice every day in our life, not just in the fiction we engage in and the content we devour online, but in how we choose to perceive of our lives and describe them to others as well. And it, become, it can become easy, I think, as you've noticed in your work, to reduce, to minimize, to turn people into characters, into narratives in the journey of our life, in which, of course, we're the hero and the protagonist, because we empathize with ourselves most of the time, and probably more often that more so than others. So the question becomes, if we're talking outside of fiction, right, if we're not just talking about movies, screenplay, video games, television, as we often do on the show, but the narratives we engage in in our everyday life, what are those stories we tell ourselves and why? So I thought Kate would be a great guest to talk with that about because she's had a lot of personal experience with this, but also with the people you've had on the show, you've had a, I think, ample opportunities to probably challenge your own sense of empathy or to stretch and expand it. Hopefully. I mean, that's the goal is I collect stories. I started off, you know, three and a half years ago as a true crime show and realized within maybe six months that that felt limiting and it also felt reductive. It felt as though people want to define other people by the single worst day of their lives. But there's a whole life leading up to and leading away from that moment. And as well, I wanted to talk to people that weren't involved in the criminal justice system. And so I sort of eased away from that. And there are people that have I've had on my show where we click immediately and I get them and they get me and we're good. And there are other people where I'm like, <laughs> I don't, this is a whole lot. It's, it's a lot. And I don't, I don't know how to put your life into a context that makes sense in my life. Mm-hmm. And that's, that I actually enjoy those episodes more because they make me think. They make mm-hmm. me try harder. And I think that's worth it. This is probably a good place to begin with the first set of stories we'd like to talk about. The stories about strangers in our lives. The people we don't, in truth, or honestly know at all. But we still, through some form of narrative, attempt to define. When you talk about the preconceptions in criminal justice podcast, right? And we're going to dig into this incident, this narrative, this experience, a character, a person you don't know, one boy, are they a a thing, right? That's often a language we hear. These people are eccentric, they're weird, they're crazy, they're not us, but it's sensational. At what point in that 
exploration of people who were not folks you had known or perhaps not known richly, did you start to feel uncomfortable with the language used to describe these people you didn't know otherwise? I mean, way back, way back when I first started practicing. So as a forensic psychologist, my job was to sit down with someone usually after conviction. Mm. Uh, They were already in prison for some reason or another, and I was being asked to determine a diagnosis or to decide where in the prison they could most like most safely be mm-hmm. housed. Um, once in a while, it was pre-conviction, determining competency to stand trial, you know, whether they're able to adequately communicate with their lawyer and the public. And one of the most pertinent questions is there is, in there is whether the act they performed for which or acts they performed for which they're in prison right now were done under what we would consider a sane or reasonable state of mind. Depends on the state. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Um, some states follow a, a what's called the monoton rule, which is effectively, do you have control over your actions? Do you know right from wrong and did you make a decision to act wrongly? Other states have something called Daubert, which is were you in the midst of a serious mental break of some form? And that's profoundly simplistic, but that's basically (laughs) what it boils down to. I suppose what would often be framed as a crime of passion. Right. Well, passion or a crime, you know, if you want to go into the vernacular, it's a crime of crazy. Right. Of being being in a moment of unreasonableness when you acted. Right. And and so it's it's monoton is more the assumption that everybody has some degree of understanding of right from wrong and control over their actions. Hmm. Daubert has more of an understanding that you can know right from wrong and still not have control over your actions. So even before you as an individual evaluator go on to talk with people in this state, there are schisms as to what presumptions, if any, should be in place for that evaluation, right? Right, right. So how do we narrow the field of who this person could be and is like and probably was like before we've even met the individual? And what questions am I asking them? Hmm. What stories am I asking them to tell me? Mm -hmm. At what point in that experience did you feel you weren't learning enough or that you were, or did you, I suppose, did you always empathize or did you feel that, did that become something you learned to do more so? That's a tough, that's a tough (laughs) question because I didn't always empathize and Mm. you can't always empathize. Sometimes it depends on what you're being asked to do. Like if you're being asked to just determine, like, it always frustrated me to some degree, and it depended on the circumstances, but it frustrated me to be asked to determine competency to stand trial, for instance, because competency to stand trial is so simplistic. You you have to know right from wrong. You have to understand the roles of the people in the courtroom, like who the judge is and who mm-hmm. your lawyer is and the basic codes of conduct, like you should not jump up on the table and scream in the middle of the proceedings. And you have to be able to communicate with your lawyer. And that's it. 
And so if you can't meet that bar, literally a toddler can tell you so. Do you know what I mean? Like, you don't need a doctoral level psychologist to determine those issues. Anybody, you. It's almost a Turing test. You know, it really, it's just, it's, it's, it was frustrating to me because you're asking me to spend a fair amount of time and documentation and then later, you know, and testifying in order to do a thing that doesn't require that much specialty. You can tell if you're with somebody who has no control over their behavior. And so that kind of got frustrating to me because I'm being asked to spend a lot of time with this person to do this thing, but I'm not really supposed to empathize with them. And I find that difficult. I find it difficult not to empathize with somebody. And then other times I would be with someone either in a forensic setting or in a crisis setting where you're talking about maybe four hours start to finish to collect their story and determine somehow magically what the next step should be. Can they safely be sent home or do they need to be placed in a locked psychiatric facility? And that one's difficult because you're seeing them at their rawest. If you let yourself, it's the easiest to empathize with, but they're telling you these stories that are horrifying and you can't comfort them because you don't you literally just don't have time how long is the or how long usually was the evaluation for you usually sat with the person for an hour at the beginning and then maybe half an hour at the end and in the meantime there were maybe two and a half hours where you determined placement and so on you know this is a podcast, though. So if you were asked to evaluate the worthiness of your guest for judgment in court <laughs> after one episode, that's effectively what that is. It's it, yeah, exactly, and it's terrifying because what if you get it wrong? Sure, you, you can presume as a podcast host, well-experienced interviewer, to know someone well enough to interview them once on a show, but to suddenly put the weight of judgment upon them. It's it's heavy. It's a heavy yeah. way, and it should be. It should be because it's Certainly. somebody else's life. And so that training was there. And when I decided to start a podcast, I was looking for a way to find my own voice again mm-hmm. because I was living in a house. I have four children. I've been married for 20 years, and my father had moved in with us. And I spent a lot of time being mother and wife and daughter, but not being myself anymore. Mm. And I was losing my own voice, my own sense of self. And so I thought, I'll start a podcast. What will I do a podcast about? I will do a podcast about things I know, <laughs> right? That's Podcast is the journey of self-discovery. I'm saying. And so I, that's where I started and then ultimately moved away from true crime only. I still, I still dip back into it. I still... Mm-hmm sway back in that direction every so often because it's what I know. But I also have this mindset that if I collect stories, even though it's only a glimpse into somebody's life, it's only an hour into somebody's life, but if I can collect stories that allow you, the listener, to understand what it is like to write a book or create a podcast or to have depression or be diagnosed with autism or, you know, or, 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 you know, I really, I don't Mm -hmm. determine what my guest comes and talks about. If you can understand that, then you can extend it to 
what it would be like to commit a crime once or as a lifestyle. Hmm. In other words, you kind of envision your show as a mirror of sorts through which they get to choose what reflection is shown. I, I do want to extend this back to an episode we had, well, a couple episodes ago when we had the philosopher Stephen Herman on, where he introduced the idea that possible worlds fictive or not, our way of exploring what our lives could have been like. In that same sense, to have guests on your show, to have them reflect a piece of themselves in the conversation during your episodes of Ignorance Was Bliss is an opportunity for you to imagine as the host, as the audience, and perhaps as the guest as well, who else and what else you could have been like, which, as you've said, allows us, one, to build empathy, but two, let's just take the bounds of what our story is and might have been to see how that isn't as defined a boundary as it seems, right? It never, it really isn't. And I'm always, once in a while, my guest will come in with a pre-chosen sure. topic. And that's fine if that's what they feel the need to do. Uh, some people need that because they, f- they feel intimidated at the idea of, hey, we're just going to talk about stuff and good luck with that. Like. <laughs> That feels too unbounded. It feels Mm. too uncontrolled for them. And so they want to talk about a specific case or a specific story. And that's fine. Okay. I'll roll with it. But my favorite episodes are the ones where we just hit record and we see what happens. And I'm always fascinated by what people choose to talk about as well as what they choose not to. Hmm. It's a silence does speak. My brother as folks listening to the show know, is special needs. He's higher functioning. He would be, he he would have been diagnosed as Asperger's when that term was still used. It is no longer because the uh, originator of that term was a Nazi scientist. And we're trying our best to distance the work and efforts of treating people with special needs from the folks who cared not at all for them. Hard as that is sometimes. But my brother was deaf for almost two years. And we were told during that period that he would never develop language capacities because it was in his formative two to four when you are supposed to be cogent and cognizant and be able to communicate fully with your family right when he finally did speak we were then told he never grasped an abstract thought because that was what the research said at the time and here's an instance where you had evidence you had precedent granted some of the premises were faulty just as i don't know how familiar you are with amazon's effort to try automating their hiring practices a while back but they fed into the automated system all the interviews and evaluations they'd done today. And unsurprisingly, what it did was replicate the results of those biases and all. And in that same fashion, when the research and evidence can only assume so far, the applications of it, as far as my brother was concerned, could only predict based on what the model showed, right? He would never have an abstract thought. He'd never be able to hold a job. He'd never be able to operate a vehicle. Very limiting sense of who he was and could be. And we ended up becoming one of those families who was very loud and demanding and insistent that he get enrichment and engagement and social interaction, not just with his peers and special needs, but in his community in the school, right? Because our feeling was that if his classmates did not get to see him as anything other than one of the kids in that group, then he would never see himself as anything other than one of the kids in that group. And in truth, he's expressed that to us over the past few years as well. But it was it was immensely difficult, I would say, to live through people's assumptions of who he was based on, in some instances, his worst moments. Because yes, he, as 
you know, people with special needs sometimes regress is the wrong word, right? But they fall upon younger sets of behaviors to deal with the situation they're in, particularly when they're tired or frustrated or their medications are imbalanced. Or sometimes when they wish to manipulate you as well, because the smart ones will, they're smart's the wrong word, but the ones who are aware of the consequences of their behavior will learn how to use that as well. So, you know, he can have a meltdown in a restaurant and people around will roll their eyes and go, oh, that poor mother, oh, that poor family. And you're thinking, did we give him the medication at the right time? Does he need extra? Is he just hot and tired and stressed? Can we leave? Can we get the food? It's such a, a macrocosm meets microcosm moment because you as the family know all of the context of this moment that's led to it. But the people in that situation around you are just witnessing the single moment of it. Right, right. Well, my, my youngest sister has muscular dystrophy. Hmm. And we were told when she was, it took us 14 months to get a diagnosis because she's saying somebody's got muscular dystrophy is like saying they have cancer. Like it doesn't narrow it down a whole lot. Do you know there's a lot of subtypes and a lot of versions? Mm -hmm. And hers, she was the 100th case ever diagnosed, like ever. And because of that, based on that data of 99 prior people with that diagnosis, they, they told, they being doctors, told us she was never going to walk or talk. And in fact, she should probably just be put away in a home and, you know, wish her luck. And I still don't entirely know how my mother did not go over that doctor's desk and grab him by the tie. Because <laughs> I would have. But um, she ended up joining the marching band mm -hmm. in high school. So there's the walking. And she ended up giving a TED Talk. So she seems to have done pretty well for herself. And this leads kind of to the other end of it, which people sometimes, I was just at a conference last weekend on this, the idea that mindset matters, and it does. The idea that your how you view and frame your experience matters, and it does. And I don't know how familiar you are with concepts like the Celestine Prophecy, the secret, all of those positive affirmation belief systems, where yeah. if you want something enough, it will happen. And if it didn't happen, it's because you didn't want it enough. Yeah, I'm skeptical on that, but but it does matter that you try. Right, and I think that's the the gradient there is the hard part to nail down. It's similar in, say, speech communication, which is one of my backgrounds. The nature versus nurture argument's a very deep one there, and you go, oh, yeah, well, you know, obviously it's 80-20, this or what, and the answer is, in reality, it isn't. And even on the genetic tendencies level, the question of how much gets expressed or altered based on the conditions in which that gene expression is active are messy, right? Yeah. You can, someone can have special needs, someone can have MS, someone can have fibro or asthma or any number of prevailing genetic conditions. But over the course of 60 to 100 years of life, what that's like can vary significantly. You know, I've been ill for a year and a half and people look and go, oh, you just have asthma. I said, no, asthma is the category of things that led to what I'm at. What I have is far worse than that, but that is what led to it. So yeah, it falls under the broad diagnosis because that's where the book puts things to make sense of it as the trigger, but it doesn't adequately to the common conception of, you know, kid wheezing after dodgeball with an inhaler, give context to the talk for an hour, pass out on the floor, unable to breathe right. situation I was in for a large portion of last year. And some of the folks I worked with did not have empathy for that, or they were of the well, it's just mind over matter. If you got over the emotional situation, your physical embodiment of it would disappear. 
The word just is one of my least favorite words. <laughs> if you just did what I think is the way to be. Just smile more. Yeah. Right. Because there is some research to show that even if the expression starts externally, it can influence the hormones released in your body. So there is some level of effectiveness there, but the how much and when is hard to nail. And I think this gets in part to our second category of stories we tell ourselves about parasocial relationships, the people we kind of know in person or mind. And here I think it might be helpful if you could split the what's What differentiates parasocial from social? Social, there is a legitimate back and forth. Mm-hmm. And there are degrees of it. So you have a social relationship with the cashier at whatever store you go to more, most often, assuming they recognize you and you recognize them. Sure. That's a social relationship. It's not a deep relationship. It's not you know, something that you would call upon in crisis, presumably. Mm-hmm. But there is a sociality to it that, you know, then there's a whole spectrum leading up to your best friend, your partner, your immediate family. Those are social relationships. A parasocial relationship happens quite often in cases of celebrity, whatever celebrity means. Mm. So I don't feel like a celebrity. I'm sitting in my basement. (laughs) My kids are upstairs. That doesn't feel to me somehow what celebrity is. Like I earn less than minimum wage for sure. my podcast. Like I, this is not celebrity, but there are people out in the world who know me because of my voice and because of the stories that I've told, because my, my podcast is not a straightforward ask and answer interview kind of podcast. Mm-hmm. It's a conversation. And that means I've told stories as well. And I've had the experience more than once of listeners whom I've never heard of and didn't have any intention of ever hearing of, (laughs) but they assume they know me because they've heard some number of episodes, maybe all of my episodes. Because you've shared some of your life and some of the things that would be shared normally during a, a full social more intimate relationship do get shared on the show, right? Absolutely. And and that's like, I've, I've made that decision and I've talked it through with my husband and, you know, and my kids, the older ones, so that they know, like, I'm entirely telling this show, this story on the podcast. Sorry, mm-hmm. Charlie. You know, that kind of thing. But, but the reality is, like, I'm aware that I'm telling stories, but there's this illusion of reciprocity mm. and By that, I mean there are people who hear these stories about my life, and I know some actually talk out loud back to me (laughs) several months after I've told the story on on Mike. There are others who think it or who send me a direct message telling me some version of what you just said resonated with me. And I'll be like, I don't even know what episode that is. (laughs) <laughs> like, Convict. I mean, I, yeah. I have almost 350 episodes out right sure. now. So, you know, I need, I, I need a little more background. This is funny. I just finished reading Six of Crows by Lee Bardugo and this, the book that follows, Crooked Kingdom, I think. And I sat there for a moment going, oh, you know, I like this book. I should follow this author online, see what else is coming out that she's produced or is writing soon. And she was on Twitter, but it said, you know, on hiatus. So I followed her on Instagram. And then I thought for a moment and said, you know, I would like to let the author know, right, that I enjoyed her book. And I had this weird moment of going, 
I'm not sure what the appropriate script here is because it feels like just posting on a random thing she puts on Instagram would be out of context, right? Here's a picture of her and her dogs. Hey, I love book XYZ. That's not parallel. And Twitter, you know, maybe there'd be a tweet about the show or the book and I could, you know, dog and dog ear there. So I just bit the bullet and said, you know what, I'm going to DM her and not expect a reply, but just, hey, uh, I, I love this book and I don't know where you're, you're at in your life, but I just thought I should say thank you. And I know on some level that's probably a little weird, but at the same point, I'm sitting there going, I don't actually know how to convey my thanks to this person in a way that isn't awkward. <laughs> right. And, and so to me, that qualifies as social because yeah. you acknowledge the boundaries sure. of the relationship and you acknowledge the limits and you acknowledge that there's something vaguely intense or awkward or uncomfortable or weird about reaching out to a random stranger. Yes. It's to me comparable to, so my hair is very long and partly purple. And I've had strangers touch my hair in public. Side note, don't do that. Don't ever do that. <laughs> Nobody ever. Oh my God. It's the creepiest thing. But I look at these people and I'm like, you don't understand that this is totally inappropriate. This is totally not right. And so that's not a social relationship. That's a parasocial relationship where they believe the boundaries are not the same as the average person, the majority of people understand the boundaries to be. So I don't have any problem at all. Like I love if somebody reaches out and says, this episode means a thing to me. It becomes a parasocial relationship when they believe, and I've had this happen, that I know things about them in return. Mm. That that there is, because they have listened to me late at night and spoken out loud their responses that I've somehow heard them or that I somehow get them. And I'm like, I can't get you. I literally wouldn't recognize you on the street. So it takes some time. Like I'm always happy to get to know new people and build up new relationships, but it is a process. It's not a matter of I responded to your DM and now we are best friends. A coda to that one would be the conversation I had with an illustrator earlier this year who I'd hopefully we'll be resuming work with where, you know, I've never worked with this individual before prior to this initial set. And we fell out of touch for a bit. And I didn't honestly know why. And my mind, of course, is presuming all kinds of reasons. But in the absence of context and information, the reality is that I had not, I did not have enough to know to go on. And eventually we did come to an understanding, but it took months. And it was, it was for me agonizing because the illustrations are part of a future for my book I wish to create. And to have this work out there and for people to look at it and go, this is this should be your cover. This should be the illustrations in the book. This should be what guides any adapted adaptation of the IP, right? For my audience, for my fans to resonate with the work we created, or rather, I suppose that I guided and she created, was deeply exciting for me. And then, of course, there's this expectation in the community that this will continue. So there's all this, you know, emotional burden and weight that gets put onto a relationship that is very, it's nascent. You know, I, don't, I barely know this person, say, for what they've chosen to share online, likewise myself to them. And it, it's fascinating, I think, particularly given this era where it's so easy on the one hand to reach the people who not only create the things you love, but perform the characters you have these parasocial relationships online with. Because I do feel that, and from what I've seen, the ability to have a fan base persist online and communicate not just with the creators but with the voices the actors sometimes the characters 
in persona, right, in content, it makes it hard sometimes, I think, for people to differentiate between what is a social and what is a parasocial relationship. When you can listen to a podcast where they interview the actor that you just, for a character, say, like on Game of Thrones, that you were enamored of, and ostensibly the parasocial relationship you have or the fans have is with the character performed by this actor, right? But they kind of want the person performing the thing they like to be just the thing they like or to embody that or to have those traits still with them even when they put that persona to the side. There's a famous true crime case, Hmm. uh, a murder that happened in, oh God, I don't know, have it in front of me, but the 80s somewhere. Um, Sounds accurate. Yeah, I mean, you know. Um, Do you recall the, the sitcom called My Sister Sam? No. It was the woman who played Mindy on Mork and Mindy. Right. Pam Dauber, I Mm want to say. And a woman named Rebecca Schaefer played the younger sister. She had played a couple of other roles here or there on TV and movies, all of which were sort of cute girl next door. Mm -hmm. And she... There, there was this this man named Robert Bardo, uh, out of Arizona, I think, who developed a parasocial relationship with right. her. Right. Believed that he knew who she was. Believed mm-hmm. that she was this cute, bubbly, friendly girl next door. Like mm-hmm. that's all she was. And then she took a role in a a I don't know what rating it would have been, but like equivalent of an R-rated show. So aimed at adults and there was a love scene and stepping out of this role as cutesy teenager and stepping into a more adult persona, as happens with child actors if they're going to stay in the field. But Bardo saw this as a betrayal of this parasocial relationship that he believed he had had because he had sent her a couple of fan letters and she Mm -hmm. sent a pretty form letter, pretty basic, you know, sign, you know, autographed photograph kind of thing back to him. And he believed this is a sign that she felt as strongly about him as he felt about her. And so Uh. he took a bus from Arizona to LA. He found where she lived because in those days it was pretty easy to call up the DMV and say, tell me where this person lived. And they say, Mm -hmm. okay, here. And he went to her home and knocked on the door and spoke to her briefly. And she was polite enough. She was fine, but she had other things to do. So she sort of brushed him along a little bit and he left and brooded about this and then came back and shot her on her own doorstep. And all of this was sort of the worst case scenario. This is one end of the spectrum of how intensely someone can buy into this idea of a parasocial relationship when they also have a mental illness and also have a tendency toward violence. And it's something that, I mean, it created stalker laws in, in California, because it turns out that he had been in touch several other times and it had always fallen through the cracks. And she wasn't even notified by the studio that this had happened because it was just sort of seen as this is, you know, having persistent fans is part of the, the price of fame. And the reality is not necessarily like there are limits and you should be aware of who's well, out think there. The mistake is to presume he still qualifies as a fan at that point, although. Fan, of course, is derived from the application of fanatic. Fanatic, exactly. And so that's just, that's sort of the end 
of, of, of a range of ways that people can have a parasocial relationship. So sometimes it's as simple as I've dealt with a few people who will be in the middle of a, what I think is a simple chatty conversation, you know, and to me, it's, it's our first or second conversation. And so I'm not sharing deep personal insight. I'm just sort of talking about my day a little bit and I'll mention something. I'll mention a cat. I'll mention, yeah, one of the cats just came in the room and they'll know the names of my cats (laughs) and I'll be taken aback by that and realize this person, first of all, knows a lot more about me than I know about them. And secondly, there's this unspoken but implied assumption that I do know these things about them or that I will. And Because there's this urge toward, as you said earlier, reciprocity. Exactly. There's this, this belief, whether it is rooted in reality, because I have a pretty good poker face. And so mm-hmm. sometimes I roll with it and sound like I know what they're talking about. And other times it's like, nope, 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 nope. We just, I just approved messages from you five minutes ago. I don't understand how you think I could know this about you. I'm curious. What is, what do you think the purpose is to parasocial relationships? Does it go back to the idea of possible worlds where you can kind of, pause it or play with the idea of a relationship with a person, be it fictive or not, without having to go into the risks and burdens and challenges of having to kind of try to commit to it. So you can watch a television show, listen to a podcast, some music, and start to develop a sense of the relationship, even if it is one-sided with a character. Is there something developmental about that to the human psyche that is valuable? Sure. It's the feeling of friendship. Okay. And the feeling of connection. And I validate that. Like, that's an important human need. And I understand where that comes from. The problem is that sometimes people mistake the feeling for the facts. You've probably given us a great transition for our next. And as we, as you'll notice, we're going a little bit closer to ourselves with each layer of these in the conversation. The stories we tell about those closest to us, where you would think it'd be easy to discern that line between feeling from fact. But. <laughs> well, I mean, bear in mind that sometimes the thing that I might say inadvertently on one of my episodes, for instance, might evoke the same level of emotional work that you would go through to pull out a long dormant feeling or thought or memory. And so there is a validity to their sense of, I have put a lot into this relationship. Relationship is in visual quotes for those who can't see because... They can't see me. Um, <laughs> exactly. But, but the, you know, they, they have put work into this and it's easy to forget that just because you've put work into a thing doesn't mean I know you've put work into a thing. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that I've put the same amount of work into your thing. I had a professor in my undergrad years, Hanburn, 
And her specialty was in teaching communications for K through five. We worked with fourth graders on public speaking. We were teaching them to perform Aesop's tables. But at one point she shared, actually I think more than a few times, she shared some of her own reasons why she became a teacher, in particular a teacher of teachers. And she confessed to us that she had been in a very abusive family and been petrified as an adult that she would recreate that environment for herself and her children. So when she married her husband, one of the conversations they had was how to negotiate this sense of awareness, to make known, here's where I am at, here's where I would like you to be at, can we meet each other somewhere? And there were a number of lessons she imparted to us, but the one that stands out to me as you say this was the simple phrase, honey, I have a request. And they had made a verbal contract where if one or the other asked something after that, I have a request, could you on Tuesdays go to pick up turkey from the deli? Could you turn the seat down on the toilet? Could you make sure that all the dishes are stacked a certain way? You know, all of the stuff that makes life easier or harder day to day, big or little, it could follow from that phrase, honey, I have a request, but here's the other end of the contract. When you asked that, you then had to do whatever the other individual asked for in response. So possibly, yes, there's room for abuse because those requests could be unbalanced, imbalanced. But the agreement that if I had something to ask of you, you would do it, but I would also be willing to do the same for you. Just this little reaffirmation each time the statement was made. Wasn't her relationship so powerful as a way to return toward a baseline, right? Because I think, and I know having experienced a lot of trauma these past few years, it's so easy to assume the other people in your most intimate relationships just know what you're thinking, how you're feeling, where you're at, and why. I mean, the the analogy in my own marriage, I guess, is not so much that requests are inherently expected to be met, because who knows? Mm-hmm. The analogy for us is that Sometimes the answer is no. And that if you ask, you have to be prepared for no. And that takes a lot of vulnerability because sometimes you're asking, you know, sometimes you're asking, yeah, pick up turkey at the deli. And if they say no, you're like, okay, you're being a dick. Like (laughs) sometimes it's pretty simple. But then other times you're asking for trust or you're asking for vulnerability or you're asking for disclosure, which could be very, very difficult. And so it's a heavy ask. And sometimes the answer is no, not right now. And sometimes the answer is no, not ever. If you can't accept no for an answer, then maybe you shouldn't ask at all. Well, then it wasn't really a question because you were expecting there'd only be one answer. Right. Then it's a demand. Exactly. And so, you know, it's, it's the ideas about how people communicate. Like that's why any real social relationship is a process. It takes time. It takes give and take on both sides, and it takes compromise, and it takes communication, and none of those are easy to do. And that includes when people come on my show, I'm asking them, will you tell me your story? Mm -hmm. And most of the time, they know that in advance, and they're prepared for it. But once in a while, I'll have someone who's never been on the podcast before. (laughs) or has never listened to my show before. And I kind of have to give them a little bit of a primer. Like, I don't have scripted questions for you. You and I are going to trust each other that we're going to have a give-and-take conversation here. 
is that okay with you? Because if it's not, I'm not going to hit record in the first place because I'm not interested in a gotcha kind of moment and I'm not interested in delving deeper than you're able to tolerate because when we are done with this conversation, we might never talk again and I don't want to cause damage or unearth things that shouldn't be unearthed in your life. You just reminded me, I was at the New Media Summit a few years ago, and part of the model to that is yet everyone who attends has to pitch what they're at, who they are, and hopefully be selected as a guest on one of the judges or someone else's shows. And I don't remember all of the details, but this was, forgive me for using the word, a woman who worked within the woo-woo category of things, which... You know, <laughs> I live in Salem, I get it exactly. Okay. You know... To kind of circle back around to the beginning of the episode, if I say woo-woo, you probably have your own idea of what that means. And often it's derogatory and sometimes deservedly so. But I, even though I personally didn't agree with what she was doing or the details of it, the one judge who said, oh, I'd absolutely love to have you on the show, not mind you because I believe anything you're doing, but I think it'd be a hoot. My fans would love it. And I'm horrified because I'm thinking, you're inviting this woman on the show to mock her. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's something I try really hard to impart to my guests, either because they've listened to my show before or they know me off mic, or I will articulate it to the best of my ability that I don't ever want anybody to feel that I'm springing anything on them. I don't ever want anybody, I don't want people to cry. Like occasionally they do and I always feel awful, but that's not ever the goal ever. Sure. And that I don't ever want anybody to regret coming on my show. And that until I hit publish, I will follow their request. Mm -hmm. No one has yet, but I'm fully prepared to just trash an episode, uh, you know, delete the whole thing and move on. If someone were to contact me and say, I don't want that to go live, I changed my mind. I think it's important here, and this is for... Those of you listening who might become a guest, those of you listening who are host, those of you listening at home who are struggling in some form of relationship or another, what you did there was to create space, right? You gave them the opportunity to say, look, I'm not sure certainly with certainty where this will go, but I'm giving you time, space and time to reflect on that after it's happened and say to me what you would like to happen. Because some folks, and this kind of goes into, I'd say, our last portion here, the stories we tell ourselves. People who've known me most of my life think I am prone to snap decisions. I just look at a thing and go, that. Even my own family did for a long time until I sat them down one day and said, the only reason it seems like an instantaneous decision is that I've gone through an arduous and deliberate process of exhausting all possibilities I can think of. So yes, by the time I arrive at the decision in front of you, it seems instantaneous because I've taken the journey to arrive at that place and I have certainty as best I can in that moment. But the observable behavior doesn't match the experience I have <laughs> that is, for the most part, not shared. And it's a the idea that the stories we tell ourselves don't always match the ones others tell of us, or that we can surrender the power we have over that. So you and I talked over last time we were conversing, and this is perhaps a, the best way for you at home to start thinking about this. I want you for a moment to just listen, and as you do, write down whatever you can of the following. I have to do this, I have to do that, I must to, and I need to. I want you to just start tallying how many times over the course of your day you've said this to yourself. 
chances are it's pretty high. Now on the other side of the paper, just write down I'd like to. See how many go under that, how many statements or even just how many times over the course of the day. I had to do this for myself because I looked at it and realized column one, I have to, I have to, I must, I need to. (laughs) I lost track. Column two, I'd like to, nothing there. And all this language puts the burden. I have to, I need to, I must. These things are obligatory. They're mandatory. They're an onus. I'd like to returns the volition to me. And nowhere in the language I used for myself of what I do through the day was there this voluntary statement of what I wanted to do, right? And you had a, you had a way of describing this. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't should all over yourself is part of it. The word should is another word that I hate a whole lot. It's weird because in a way it sounds like it's just minimizing the burden, but in a way... Well, it does two things. The word should, it... it first of all, establishes that there is some ideal way to function in the world. There's an ought. There's, yes, there's some way that, you're, that, that good people, right people, smart people, whatever word you want to include, do it. Mm-hmm. So there's that. That's part of it. And the other part is that I'm not doing it. I'm not able to, or I don't want to, or I don't know how. So there's this disconnect Mm -hmm. between the ideal way to function and the way I function. And I hate that. (laughs) I think in part it's why affirmational mentality is so addictive. Because if you flip it into the, well, I am, I will, I am, I am, I I will, I, I exist, this must, you... And I, I don't mean to disparage affirmational methodologies. They're great for recovery from addictions, from trauma, from people who have felt powerless to, to a state where they feel like they have some control again over their life. But it's a, it's a tough, it's not even a scale or a circle. I'm trying to find the shape to define this, but the, the, the balance between the ideal of who you say you're supposed to be, your intimates say you're supposed to be, society says you're supposed to be versus what you internalize of that on the one end. And then you've got the other, which is the, well, here's what I think everything else should be, right? I think the world should be. I think I must be. I want all of this to be. I'm thinking back to a my writing program when I was teaching writing was affiliated with philosophy. And at one point, they introduced one of David Hume's earliest essays to the students. The notion that if something gave him a tummy ache, it must be evil. It's a bit of a reduction, but essentially, if it made me feel bad inside, it must be bad outside. He was exploring this as a, how people, how reductive ethics can get, right? Well, and I hesitantly agree that affirmations as a lifestyle can be a positive thing. They are certainly more positive to say nice things to yourself than to insult yourself or put yourself down or to limit yourself. So on the one hand, yes, do the thing. Be nice to yourself. Say that you're better than you think you are. And sometimes there's, there are neural pathways that form that hear you say those words and your brain hears it and goes, oh, well. It must be true. Maybe I am. On the other hand, the affirmation lifestyle shares a boundary in the geography of the brain with lying. <laughs> That's fascinating and probably not surprising. Because sometimes we say, like I could say, I could wake up every day and say, I'm going to go turn a cartwheel today. Mm -hmm. That is a thing I'm going to do. I can do it and I'm going to do it. That's a lie. Like I have never turned a cartwheel in my life. 
I have an, an autoimmune disorder, which would make it dangerous for me to try mm-hmm. because failure would likely mean a broken back. And I've already broken my back twice and I do not recommend it. And it creates this, this illusory ideal that somehow it's important to do this thing and I'm going to pin my hopes on it, which is both a lie and setting myself up for failure. So I'm cautious with that mindset, with the, with the secret, with the, that, that whole genre of books if, if in the library. If you just believed, yes. If enough. I just believe enough in myself, then I could do anything. Or like when people say to kids, you can do anything you want when you grow up. Baloney, you can. Like there are kids who cannot do math. They have a learning disorder. They can't do math. Don't tell them they can if they just want to bad enough because you're setting, you're lying to the child and you're setting them up for failure. We do it to ourselves. I'm numeralexic, so I drove my math teachers crazy because I would do division backwards the longest way possible. I'd get it right. I'd do my geometric proofs through the non-standard methods or through some other solution I had found that wasn't the one the book required. So I'd lose points or fail the test. But when I started learning about this version they do now, I guess they call it stacking, where you conceptualize numbers as objects, as volume, right? I'm very spatial. So yeah, doing multiplication of mathematics by ratios and proportions and all that stuff, Without an issue, I could just process the tables. And these are the same things I struggled with as a child. And that's the, it's one of those aha moments of I'm neither good nor bad at math. I'm good at math in certain ways and terrible at it at others. I can improve and strengthen both of those, but the absolute doesn't make sense in either of those, right? Even though it might be easier, as you're saying, to kind of adhere to one of the absolutes as a, as a strut or as a support or foundation to work the rest of my day from. And I became aware of this taking calculus, integral and differential. I don't even remember which one I was good at, but one was almost innate for me to do. The other, I sat there and my eyes glassed over. <laughs> yeah. I bet. Well, is- <laughs> I mean, I, I, so I was excellent at sure. math and computers for a long time. I, I went to an engineering college and started off as a mechanical engineering major. And not because I liked it. Like, trust me, (laughs) but because I was good at it and I didn't know what else I wanted to do. And luckily, I got sick my junior year and somebody brought me a book on profiling in the FBI. And that led me down a path ultimately to forensic psychology, which is not the same as profiling, but it's certainly more in the vein of profiling than it is in the vein. Right. You're you're not Mandy Patinkin in Criminal Minds. Correct. But I could have been, you know, that was one option. I just Mm -hmm. opted not to because it didn't support the lifestyle I wanted to lead. And so I went into psychology instead and tapped into whole chunks of my brain that I had never used in terms of empathy, in terms of patience, in terms of allowing someone else to define things for me that I thought I understood you know, in term, like what, what does it mean to have clinical depression sure. means different things for different people and allowing that to be a true thing was important. And then in, when I was in my late thirties, I developed epilepsy. And I also in my early thirties had a traumatic brain injury from a, I was in a coma for a week and a half. And that combination of things created a lesion on my frontal lobe. And now I have 
what's called dyscalculia, which is like people know what dyslexia is when the number, when the letters scramble themselves on the page and you have a hard time reading and absorbing written information. I have that for numbers. I used to have an eidetic memory, which is the, again, the, the auditory version of a photographic memory. If you said a string of numbers to me, I could memorize them as well. If you said a fairly complex algebra or even calculus problem to me and left me alone long enough, I could figure it out in my head, not showing any work because that's how my brain functioned. And now that's gone. So who you were and who you are are different. Exactly. I can do very simple math if I write it down now, but calculus is not a thing in my world anymore, which is funny because I married my calc tutor. So (laughs) (laughs) there's that. But um, I don't understand it. And and there's a frustration there because I know I used to. Like I know I did is a fact about myself. I know I used to understand it, but I don't still now. And so that's another thing about this concept of the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves is there needs to be some flexibility over time. And sometimes you lose abilities and other times you gain abilities and you have to give yourself space for that. And if you're so busy making declarative statements about things you cannot do and things you can do or things you will do, then that creates barriers and walls to possibilities you've never even thought about. And the people, perhaps, you could have led in your life that you didn't. So that's all for tonight. We'll return with Kate and the rest of our convo in two weeks' time after which my co-host Dave and I will have an episode on perhaps the most important lesson of all. What to do before you try. If you like what you heard tonight, or just want to keep in touch with us online, you can follow the show on Instagram at HBTigers. That's with a Y. We'll see you all next time. A good story can excite us, yes. But the best ones, fiction or not, compel, inspire, or drive us toward the hope that we need for a better life. Remember, you don't need to know everything right now, but you do need to write. So make sure to like, review, and subscribe to us at Here Be Tigers. And until next time, take life by the tail. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.